Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I am Mark Schein, the national co-chair of the Marsh McLennan Agency Cyber Center of Excellence. And we have a very special guest here today, Mr. Ken Rashbaum. Good morning. Thanks for coming, Ken. My pleasure. So, Ken, before we get to who you are and some of the great work you've been able to do from your clients from a privacy perspective, you know, tell me about the guy who grew up in Queens. Okay. Well, it's been, uh, as as the songwriter said, a long, strange trip for sure. Um, I... uh, Grew up in Bayside, Queens. I now live in New Jersey with my family. We uh, have uh, moved a number of different times, a number of different places. I lived in Brooklyn for many years. Uh, After law school at uh, Hofstra, I started my career as an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. I tried uh, all kinds of uh, violent felonies. I tried economic crimes cases, uh, homicides. And then moved from there into being a civil trial lawyer, which I uh, did through 2008 and still uh, get involved in litigation from time to time. It's litigation that involves uh, either data theft or some civil matter or criminal matter that involves electronic evidence. Sure. And uh, I'm an adjunct professor of law at Fordham Law School where I teach a course in uh, technology law, which is an overview of privacy, cybersecurity, electronic evidence, and uh, transactional work around technology. How long have you been teaching at Fordham for? I've been teaching at Fordham for five years. Before that, I taught at Hofstra for two. Excellent. And when you were teaching at Hofstra, what kind of course? It was the same course. It's a course that I designed. There was nothing like it at Hofstra, and there was nothing like it at Fordham. Hofstra now has uh, courses in privacy and cybersecurity. Fordham does too, but nothing really that provides the overview and the relationship to business realities that my course does. I think it's phenomenal. You uh, got your law degree from Hofstra and went back and started teaching there. Exactly. It was a little bit of uh, paying it back. Uh, also, the school uh, the school actually came to me and said, we'd like to get you involved. What would you like to do? And I said, I'd love to teach a course as an adjunct. Okay. So once I designed it, it was approved by the faculty committee. And uh, we went from there. They pretty much let me do what I do my own thing in terms of designing it. So, so when you left Hofstra, you went to the Brooklyn DA. Right. Now, Ken, I got to imagine you have some stories from the Brooklyn DA days. We don't have enough time to talk about all the stories <laughs> I have from those days. Let's, let's think, uh, what was one of your most memorable experiences from the Brooklyn DA? One of the most, well, there were two. One was my very first homicide trial, okay. um, which where the jury went out for two nights in deliberation. And um, I actually got to use uh, Shakespeare in my in my summation, <laughs> much to my bureau chief's dismay, because <laughs> he was convinced that the jury was going to ask for Lady Macbeth's testimony read back, <laughs> which did not happen. But the two defendants were caught uh, after a chase uh, by the by the police, wiping blood from their hands in the bathroom of a social club. So I I couldn't resist. You know, I said this is. 
what more evidence of guilt can you have? Hours Lady Macbeth said, may all the blood from this, from the oceans wash this blood from my hands. Alas, no. I love it. So when you were finished the Brooklyn DA, you went into civil trial work. Correct. What was one of the more memorable experiences from that? Oh, there were many. And again, we don't have time on this podcast, but I did once represent David Bowie. Really? I did, yes. Uh, he was sued based on, as a result of a an accident, one of his roadies fell off a speaker tower hmm. uh, in Florence, Italy. Okay. And uh, I moved to dismiss the matter against David, and the judge ordered a hearing. So I had him testify in the Bronx. Um, and this was well before social media, well before even cell phones. Sure. Nevertheless, word got around who was coming into the courthouse, and we had a line of court officers down the hall from the judge's chambers where David and I were, were sitting, holding books of sheet music for him to autograph. Hmm. And he signed every one. Very gracious fellow and a great witness. Nice. We did get the case dismissed against him. Well, good for you. So, um, Ken, when we take a look um, at HIPAA compliance, I know, you know, in New Jersey, you were the HIPAA guy. How'd you get, how'd you get to, to so familiar with it? I mean, what was the experience with HIPAA? Well, I had been a uh, trial lawyer uh, for uh, representing hospitals, physicians, physicians groups. And uh, when HIPAA came along, I saw an opportunity. said, all of my clients are going to need to follow this. So I read all 2,200 pages of federal regulation and commentary, no primers at the time. Sure. This was in 2000 or so. Regs took effect in 2001. Uh, created a PowerPoint and took it around, all mm -hmm. our hospital clients. And I said, this is something you, you need to do. Um, and then uh, we were retained by uh, a couple of large hospital systems uh, here in the New York area. Uh, we were also doing work for hospital systems in uh, Dallas, in the Los Angeles area, in Chicago. And I had started the HIPAA practice group at my old firm. Excellent. So, Ken, when you take a look at kind of HIPAA and cyber, what are the parallels that you're able to draw? Well, HIPAA has a security rule, which is all about cyber. The HIPAA, re the HIPAA regulations are divided in two. There's the privacy rule and the security rule. The preamble to the security rule states that it was implemented, to, I'm sorry, it was implemented to facilitate privacy. Sure. And you have to think about how forward thinking this was. This was drafted in the late 90s. The electronic medical record, other than perhaps uh, some communications for laboratories and pathology departments and maybe radiology, was just a glimmer in people's eyes. It was nowhere near what the HITECH Act brought it around Absolutely. to be. Uh, so the thought was that with this electronic information about to come online, safeguards were needed for it because otherwise uh, there would be no privacy. So Ken, you had mentioned HITECH. You want mm -hmm. to tell the, the listeners what the High Tech Act was? You have to remember what it stands <clears> for. <throat> uh, health Information Technical and Economic Clinical Health. Wow, I can't believe I remembered that. Um, but that was part of the stimulus package in the uh, first Obama administration. Uh, and it was an influx of federal money to move the country to an electronic medical record system. So there were, there were standards in the HITECH Act 
uh, called meaningful use. To get that money, you had to implement these safeguards for your electronic medical record system, and you had to have a medical record system that met the requirements of the High Tech Act. It also uh, comprised a number of amendments to the core HIPAA regulations. So it sounds like what we had from HIPAA was this core kind of regulation and that rolled into high tech. Right. It sounds like it's very similar what's going in in the privacy space or the, the you know the cyber regulatory space, as we call it. Um, taking a look at the way that we've kind of developed um, um, from an incident response plan in Massachusetts all the way now to kind of developing the New York Shield Act here in New York. Mm-hmm. Can you know you're very involved with some things in New Jersey? Would you be able to tell the listeners about what you've been able to do from a legislation perspective? Yeah, uh, but first let me mention what you where you started with HIPAA. I look at HIPAA as the lodestone. That is where privacy and cybersecurity regulation in the United States started. It is the only nationwide comprehensive privacy and cybersecurity law with implementing regulations that we have in this country. There are, there are uh, security and confidentiality regulations under the Regulation SP for the SEC, but that's only for public companies. Uh, there's the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, sure. but that's only for certain companies and certain services as well. The U.S. is very sectoral, whereas the rest of the world has overall privacy and cybersecurity uh, legislation. And Pretty much every privacy and cybersecurity regime in the states in the U.S. derives from what was started with with HIPAA. Massachusetts, you mentioned, the oldest in the country, started in two thousand in two thousand and ten. Um, I've been uh, privileged to work with Assemblywoman Valerie Huddle. Uh, of Bergen County, who is the uh, chair of the New Jersey Assembly's Homeland Security and State Preparedness Committee to assist her in a draft of a bill that would be the first privacy and cybersecurity law in New Jersey. I testified uh, as an expert in this in 2018 before her committee. Um, We had bipartisan support. Uh, Senator Tom Kane Jr. uh, co-sponsored it in the Senate. There is now another bill pending by uh, uh, sponsored by Assemblyman Raj Mukherjee uh, from uh, Jersey City. Uh, I've been told, although I haven't seen this in writing, that there has been a direction from the leadership to merge the two bills so that something can be voted on this year. So we're waiting for the staffs to merge the two bills, and then hopefully there'll be committee hearings and we'll move it forward. That's excellent news. <clears throat> Thank you for everything you're doing for the state of New Jersey. Um, you know, when we take a look at, you had mentioned that the U.S. is very sectoral from the way mm-hmm. that they kind of regulate, if you will. Do you see some type of federal uh, national privacy law coming in the foreseeable future? Not the foreseeable future is a very elastic term. I certainly don't see it in the next year, depending on what happens with the election. I don't see it in the next four years. Uh, The problem is that there seems to be an unbridgeable divide. Uh, The Democrats favor a... Everybody think... Let me back up. Everybody thinks federal privacy and cybersecurity law is necessary that it's a good thing. So there is no debate about the ends. There is a debate about the means. The Republicans want a bill that will preempt all state legislation. Uh, 
The Democrats want something similar to HIPAA, whereby state legislation stricter than the federal rule and the protection of privacy would remain. HIPAA is, in effect, a minimum standard, a floor. Sure. Uh, New York goes beyond it in protection of records on mental health, mental health, HIV treatment, or reproductive health. Massachusetts has something similar. So does California. Those laws remain. Um, even though HIPAA is in place. And that's where that's what most of the Democrats' bills want to do. Um, what's going to happen and how that bridge can be crossed in Congress, I don't know. Sure. So, so I guess when we think about um, what a mature cybersecurity program looks like, and when you're kind of talking to your clients, mm -hmm. is there anything specific or, or a best practice that you typically uh, recommend on, on a more frequent basis? Is there one for the listeners... I mean, I, I know that there's a, a treasure trove of information that you could deploy, but is there one kind of critical piece that if they can do today, uh, it might make them a, a better uh, cyber risk? Yes, a risk assessment with a data map. Uh, first, figure out what you've got. What kind of data do you have? Where, wh wh why do you have it? Where do you have it? Is it protected, and if so, by which laws? And with whom do you share it? And how do you safeguard it? Those are the core things that you need to do in a data map. Because if you don't know what you've got, you can't protect it. Sure. And increasingly, customers want it protected. Most of my clients in the, the privacy and cybersecurity space came to me not because of fear, because of opportunity. They came to me because they had customers who were willing to give them significant business if they met these particular safeguards uh, because, in turn, their customers customers were insisting on it. So it's a very interesting Ken concept, Ken, is rather than taking a look at cyber risk and seeing it as a defensive measure or something that might be negative, you're looking at it, and if you can strengthen your safeguards, this may actually be an opportunity to go out and procure additional business or win additional business if you do have better uh, or more mature cybersecurity posture than perhaps another. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen it. I, I've got numerous clients who came to me in a rush because somebody was offering them a large contract, but they had to have these safeguards in place. And a lot of my work now for these clients and new clients is reviewing proposed service level agreements, proposed master service agreements, um, even doing due diligence for private equity funds who want to invest in new technology-based companies, app developers, AI developers, uh, e-commerce sites, and they look to us to assess the risk. So that's really interesting. Just um, t tell me a little bit more about what the private equity organizations are looking for when they're going out and they're looking to possibly take over a new target acquisition. It's not so much taking over, although sometimes it is. To a great extent, it's buying an interest. Maybe it's a controlling interest. Maybe it's a minority interest. But they need to know, to put it plainly, are they, are they buying a pig in a poke? Uh, what is the risk factor? Is this company a good risk? Venture capital is the same way. When I speak at meetups to groups of young developers um, and tell them why it's important for them to bake security into their product, um, when I first started 
doing these presentations about 10 years ago, I would kind of get eyes rolling and people would check their phones and uh, not really pay much attention. And then when I said to them, I, I would ask the following questions. Who here has seed money? Well, most of the hands went up. Who has Series A? few hands went up. Who wants to get the Series A financing? You know, if they had four hands, they'd, they'd, they'd raise them. And I would say, well, let me tell you, um, Andreessen Horowitz has a privacy department that does nothing but look at whether or not the company in which they want to invest is taking privacy seriously. Sequoia, BlackRock, many others all have the same thing with security. Sure. So this is a way. This is a way for you to get money in the door. Now the phones go down. Now oh, we're going to pay attention to this. Sure. Well, Ken, um, is there anything that I should have asked you today that I didn't? Yeah, just one thing, which is this is an evolving area. Um, I tell my law students that this is a great time to be moving into this space because you can't look up the law online. Mm -hmm. You can't go to LexisNexis and say, tell me the law of privacy and cybersecurity in New Jersey. It's changing every day. It's sure. changing to adapt to the needs of business, government, academia, pretty much, pretty much you name it. But, you know, from where you're coming from, the insurance industry is trying to keep up with it. I say to I say to the students, the relationship of the law to technology is a dog chasing its tail. It doesn't catch up. You know, you guys in the insurance industry are a lot faster and more agile and more adroit in catching up than than the lawyers are, but you're still doing it. This came up in my class last night. We were talking about AI. What happens when the algorithm goes wrong? What happens when you have an MCAS system fail in an airplane and people die? What happens when you have an autonomous car system fail and you have accidents? Which, where does this fall? Does it fall under commercial general liability because it's an accident? Well, there are tech exclusions in those policies. Does it fall under errors and omissions? Oh, no, there are bodily injury exclusions in those policies. Uh, what are the standards of care? What would underwriting look to with an AI developer when developing an algorithm is sometimes called a dark science or a black box. Nobody knows what goes into it. Facebook got sued by the Housing and Urban Development Department for cyber redlining, for directing ads at particular groups to the point that they disenfranchised others. In fact, having exclusions from the placement of the ads for people who on social media expressed an interest in Hispanic culture. Sure. or Southeast Asia, or even such things as the <clears throat> Hispanic Bar Association. Now, come on, who wouldn't want to sell an apartment to a lawyer? Well, there may be reasons you don't want to outside of race, creed, or color, but if you start moving into those areas, now you're implicating federal anti-discrimination law. Now, what policy would that fall under? I have no idea. Well, Ken, thank you for stopping by the show today and chatting cyber. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.